0: Welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. This is a podcast that explores the latest entrepreneurs, startups, founders, business leaders, and even enterprises that are changing the game. We call them the disruptors. You might see them as your mentors or maybe even your colleagues, but we are so excited to bring to you Each week, someone we find either fascinating, progressive, or someone that's really making changes in all kinds of industries. We are agnostic in what we cover, so we cover everything from mobility to AI to food and produce, you name it, we cover it. But most importantly, we want to showcase to you entrepreneurs that are really making a difference and making the world a better place. Hello and welcome to Parlay Me Powerplays podcast. Today we are joined by a very unique guest. We have the successful business journalist and media executive Eric Schurenberg. Now, Eric was most recently the CEO of Mansueto Ventures, the home of iconic media brands, Inc. and Fast Company. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone listening. About Inc and Fast Company, but they are the, one of the top, top uh, well, digital destinations and magazine destinations for entrepreneurial and business leader information. He is also currently the co-host of the anti misinformation podcast called In Reality, and host of an Inc series, The Human Factor. So during um, Eric's tenure as president of Inc, the title's revenues grew by 23 percent and operating profits tripled which is just astounding so the publication won numerous journalism awards with eric as editor-in-chief including the national magazine award for general excellence now before joining inc eric was the founding editor of cbs moneywatch.com and editor-in-chief of bnet.com before cbs Eric was managing editor of Money Magazine, which won the Lucy Award for Service Journalism. So we are in good company today, people. Um, He has also been a familiar face and voice on CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, Public Radio International, CBS This Morning. I mean, the list goes on, The Today Show and Good Morning America. So welcome, Eric, to Parlay Meet Power Players podcast.
1: Well, thanks, January. Nice to be here.
0: It's so great to have you here. And it's just fantastic because, you know, usually we interview, well, you are a CEO, but from, we interview CEOs from different disciplines. We've never had actually an award-winning journalist join us before. So this is very exciting for us. Now, um, you are far more well-versed in journalism and podcasts than I am. Uh, and you actually ha- are a podcast co-host for the series, as we, we mentioned, called In Reality. In which you aim to shed light, uh, my understanding, on the fight against misinformation by highlighting the thinkers and doers advocating truth. So, I'd love to kind of get into that a little bit further in the podcast. Um, but you also are the host of CEO to CEO, an interview program for Inc. about leadership, entrepreneurs, and media for Inc. called The Human Factor. So. You've definitely been busy since you've um, stepped away from um, Monsudo Ventures. So I'd love to learn more about this. But it's always interesting, I think, to what I call start at the beginning, yeah, and how you kind of got into the world of journalism and what brought you here today. So my first question is, my understanding is you were an actor before venturing into journalism. So one of my questions is what drew you away from acting? other than, you know, may, maybe not be able to pay the bills doing acting, let's be honest, I think 99% of actors are out of work. But uh, but what led you towards journalism? And do you think your time being an actor equipped you with creative and fundamental storytelling telling skills that helped, like, serve you as a journalist? Kind of, can you take us back to that time?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that the thing that got me out of acting was just growing up
0: yeah <laughs> it
1: enough. was it was one of those things that I just had to try. I would not forgive myself if I hadn't given it a shot, and you know your the calculus you do about your future when you're twenty years old is different from the calculus you do when you're you know twenty six or twenty seven and which is when I finally decided to give acting the heave ho yes. uh one of the things that that actually made me decide that I'd had enough was I actually started to work. Okay. Uh, So I, so I achieved a certain level of success and was working in regional theaters and uh, uh, off Broadway. And I saw what the life would be like. Mm. And I said to myself, Mm. you know, I actually am one of those guys who wants to have a steady job and a family and, That would be very hard in the gypsy Mm -hmm. life that that I saw from my successful colleagues on stage. And so much as I loved performing, um, I just realized that it wasn't going to be the life for me. And people had always told me that I could write. And so Mm -hmm. I used sort of the the networking skills that I had built up as an actor, or at least the... The notion that you had to get into a network to advance anywhere in a career, and that's what uh, launched me into journalism. I went back to school uh, at a, at a place that promised to filter you into the professional network for publishing, both books and magazines, and that was the key to the career that I have now. And I have to say that compared to acting, uh, journalism, while it's not exactly you know. Wall Street when it comes to compensation it was so much easier to get a job and hold a job than it was in show business you know you're you got a you got a living wage and the job didn't end uh when the show ended in six weeks or whatever it was so for for me I thought uh this is the life
0: fantastic that's interesting because um we have a similar um beginning I I too had dreams of being an actor and did all that when I was, you know, 20 something, and then soon realized, uh, like you, that is this the life that I want? <laughs> Unlike you, I, I wasn't getting paid jobs. Um, so that was, you know, a, a quick, a quick uh, sentence to realizing I wanted to do something else. But that's really fascinating. So, do you think that, you know, your time being an actor, though, uh, equipped you? Because obviously, being an actor, you have to be great at storytelling, right? And journalism is, to a degree, storytelling, like it is, um, you know, a different way of telling stories. So do you think you kind of were equipped with some fundamental skills there from your time as an actor?
1: I think that storytelling as an actor uh, is different from storytelling as a writer. Uh, mm. You are the the vessel for telling a playwright's story as as an actor, but you're, you're kind of just uh, helping the audience experience it, but you're not creating the story. But where I do think acting came in handy is in presentations, and you have to do those as a as a media executive uh, or as a you know an editor um, who has writers reporting to him or her. So that is where it it came in handy. And, you know, I guess the irony is that, as you noted, I had all these appearances on broadcast media and, you know, a regular radio show and so forth. Um, I think the acting skills probably came in very handy there.
0: Yes, indeed. It was showtime. You were able to step up. That's brilliant. So I guess my next logical question is why business journalism, you have, you know, different genres, obviously, crime, lifestyle, hard news, celebrity, um, business journalism. What drew you towards that vertical? Or did it just come about? That's what you stepped into? It was
1: one of those things that just came about. So I I think that my career, like many people's career was not exactly linear. And it wasn't what I thought it would be uh, when I started, certainly. Uh, One of the, um, I guess, an anecdote that illustrates this is that uh, at one point I was accepting an award on behalf of Money Magazine. And Mm -hmm. the venue for the award happened to be right down the street from one of the theaters that I had appeared in when I was an actor. And... So I, at, at one point during the you know the, the dinner that was associated with the award ceremony, I walked out of the hotel or ballroom wherever the what whatever the venue was don't exactly remember and walked down the street to the theater, and it was the most remarkable feeling, to be standing there and be transported back to this previous totally different life, and thinking.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: how on earth did I ever get from there to where I am now? And thinking that um, however I did it, and it would be very hard to retrace those steps or have plotted them in advance. uh, I was so glad I did. I felt like I had found my tribe and had found a career where I actually was using the gifts that I had been given and found um, the, the kind of intellectual stimulation a sense of mission that uh that really gave me deep satisfaction you
0: found your calling you found your calling which you know that that, that's all you can really wish for in this life so so um well that's brilliant look congratulations it's not you know it's always brave to change direction at any stage in your career and it sounds like it was obviously the right the right choice um so let's talk about i guess the world of journalism and kind of I guess, the political climate and how, you know, we are where we are. Um, It's no secret that the world of journalism has come under scrutiny and definitely, obviously, since you first stepped into it, um, it's changed, right, Um, to where it is today. Um, Without getting too political, um, you know, some politicians have waged a war on what we call fake news and this has created, you know, a big distrust in media and placed an increased pressure on journalists, for you know, being on demand, twenty-four-seven news cycles, but we all know the reality of newsrooms face shortages of revenues and resources, and the discourse you know of disinformation, which and misinformation, which you talk about in your podcast series, um, which is so evident on you know social media. So, um, given all these, you know, um, it's not all doom and gloom, but <laughs> these external factors, um, you know in your 20 years, um, can you maybe give us some insight into where you think journalism has excelled um, in the past, let's say, I mean, decade or we can keep it to the past few years if you prefer, um, and also perhaps where it's fallen short and what you think the future holds. This is an entire podcast in itself, just so you know this question. Um, but, yeah, some I guess just some insights from your perspective or where you've seen you know, the the biggest changes and, I guess, challenges.
1: Journalism holds a particularly important role in a democracy, and I don't think that that's a very controversial statement. It's the only Mm -hmm. industry that is given explicit protection in the US Constitution. The because Mm -hmm. it was evident to the people who wrote the Constitution that a free press was essential to a functioning democracy. And so where journalism has excelled is in holding that mission close to its heart and um, holding uh, people in power accountable uh, and in providing information to allow people to execute their, you know, the people's role in, in a functioning democracy. And that continues unabated. I think that the, um, you know, you see that in the, you know, the heroic work of journalists, you know, in this country uh, and in other countries, it's, you know, not, an accident that the Nobel Peace Prize this year was awarded to two journalists, one in the Philippines and one in Russia, mm-hmm. um, because wow. it is, um, you know, in, in some countries, it's a lot harder to practice the, the job of a free press than it is here, um, although it has become considerably more risky and contentious mm-hmm. than it ever has been in my memory. So, so, you know, I would say that the media and the press, you know, professional journalism is one of the crucial institutions of truth that allow people in a community to understand what's really happening, what is really true. And so when journalists um, take that mission seriously, when they do their best to make sure that they are accurate when they show their sources when they are careful about what they go to press with to make sure that it's verified and as accurate as it can possibly be when they admit their mistakes that's when journalists are doing their job their important job in the best possible way um Mm -hmm. journalists uh, are fall short when they don't live up to those standards when they go to press hastily uh, with uh, information that is not correct or at least they don't explain mm-hmm. that this information is provisional and they don't they, they can't really verify it uh, and when they don't admit mistakes uh, there are there are business pressures as you alluded to earlier January that that um, as the um, advertising model online pushed uh, journalistic organizations to, you know, become all about volume and publish a lot of trivial stuff and sensational stuff and clickbait headlines and so forth. That's that's really unfortunate. It hasn't done anything at all to help restore trust in journalism. Mm. But I think that it is not an accident, to use that phrase again, that certain politicians describe the free press as the enemy of the people. Um, That is Mm. a phrase that was invented in, at least as it applied to the press, in uh, Stalinist Soviet Union. Um, And it is Mm. to eliminate the free press and to undermine trust in the free press is straight from the playbook of authoritarians. Um, So Mm. it is, it's hard to, when the, um, you know, when the president of the United States is leveling that kind of charge against the press as an institution, it is very, Mm. very damaging. And presidents have had issues with reporters in the past. Um, Sometimes, Mm. because reporters got stuff wrong sometimes because reporters found stuff that was true and that presidents wished they hadn't gotten but i it's never ever in in my memory been as toxic as it is now mm. uh, at least in this country
0: it's yeah it's definitely come to yeah a a a place in the last few years that no one saw coming um, but hopefully we are kind of heading out of it a little bit. But like you said, it's, you know, it's now popping up across all different countries in different ways. So um, I think it's a fight that we as journalists uh, and as an industry will keep having to fight and advocate for. Um, but yes, no, thank you. That 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 is really great insight and I appreciate that. And I guess what, what do you think the future holds? I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the podcast too, but do you think it will get better or do you think we have the, the good fight ahead of us? Uh,
1: I think it will get better. Yeah. The, uh, for a couple of reasons. Mm. One is that the press is necessary, mm. that people cannot um, find out what's true on their own. They have to outsource that determination to other institutions. And, um, you know, we already do that with uh, science to figure out sort of what's true about the physical world and medicine and all the other things that are important to our lives. Um, We do it with law, where we rely on the rules of evidence and, you know, other protocols of the legal system to make sure that justice gets administered and that we can govern ourselves. And so it is with media that we really need uh, a media that we can rely on to, um, you know, tell us what is actually happening and in, in a way that we can believe. Uh, mm. So we'll get back there because because we have to. Uh, but it's, there is an awful lot of repair.
0: I agree. I agree. I think we're Heading back in the right direction, um, but there's a lot of repair to be done. Um, which brings me, I guess, to my next question, um, or rather, discussion is uh, you know, I've been an advocate and uh, personally an early adopter of social media for oh, nearly 10 years now at Parlay Me, and it's no secret that we're highly social in our strategy. And it's evident, obviously, that social media has changed the face of journalism forever um you know they i think the statistics are 53 percent of u.s adults get their news from varying platforms including twitter linkedin and facebook so it's just you know astounding how much people aren't even gravitating towards the all you know they're clicking through or whatnot but they're getting their first taste of news from these actual social platforms so um even so, um, re- reporters do have this kind of love-hate relationship with social media. Um, I personally believe it opens up a world of opportunities in journalism um, and the, be- the ability to reach more people. Um, but tell me what you think about social media because obviously in your career of being a journalist, you've seen it, you know, when it first kind of came into your your world and kind of, I guess, the challenges and opportunities it it proposed, um, do you think it does more harm or or good uh, for news journalism? And if so, why?
1: Well, there are lots of ways to to parse the impact of social media on professional journalism. So one mm-hmm. is the commercial aspect. Um, mm-hmm. Social media has basically taken over the main source of revenue for traditional media outlets uh, advertising. Yeah. And that's because social media does a better job of targeting ads at the people that advertisers want to reach yeah. mm. that technological advances in uh, ad targeting and the data that social media firms are able to collect on you and allow their advertisers then to you know, reach the most likely people to buy their product is something that media institutions can't replicate. So that in a sense the social media platforms are you know particularly Facebook and Google are are sucking all the revenue oxygen out of the room in which traditional media has operated. Um another problem that social media poses I mean that's a big problem but another problem that social media poses towards uh, professional journalism, is that people confuse social media with the news. Uh, mm. Social media, so Facebook and Google and Twitter and Telegram, those are just platforms. And they are not the media, it's sort of in the sense of a news gathering and news distributing organization, any more than um, than, you know, newsprint is a newspaper. It's just a a medium for conveying information. And so a lot of what happens uh, on social media is um, a lot of the information that's that's distributed on social media doesn't come from professional journalists at all. It comes from people who are either masquerading as professional journalists or from other users who are sharing information that they've gotten from still other users. So it's, and that is not subject to the same standards of editorial integrity as professional journalism. And, um, and it's often untrue and very often inflammatory. And sometimes it is deliberately false, frequently deliberately false, uh, because it's Mm -hmm. being spread by people with an agenda and, uh, Mm -hmm professional journalism is tarred with that same brush um and i you know another way that uh social media damages the reputation of professional journalism is that they take the um the content that journalists create and monetize it themselves and that's you know that is unfair as has been recognized by legislation in, in places like Australia, for example. So um, that is um, so that sort of that's the, the the nature of it, and the you know, and then there are many other harms that social media has done on the democratic process, simply by um, the way that they distribute information. Not only are they, as a rule, kind of indifferent to the truth or falsehood of the information that passes on their platform. It's not their job, they say. Uh, But they're also um, they also take an active role in driving people apart by feeding them you digging them deeper into filter bubbles or rabbit holes that they may have expressed an interest in all in the interest of keeping their attention on the platform
0: yeah it's all about it's all about um uh, keeping them for as long as possible in their world <laughs> let's face it um yeah look it's it's definitely yes what social media is one of these love hate things um definitely i i appreciate it for kind of you know the conversations you can have, and the reaching of, you know, different audiences that you might never, you know, reach. But in regards to how these platforms are actually, like you said, in Australia, it was the whole, you know, debacle of like, well, who owns who owns the who owns the uh the press? You know, is, is it the company or is it the platform? Um, and they've definitely been mm-hmm. taking <laughs> taking a lot of the a lot of the advance, you know. Uh, make a lot of money from a lot of content, you know, that established uh, press press uh, makes. So it is kind of a a, a push and pull sort of thing. Um, but I don't know what happened. I know that happened in Australia. and There was word that it was going to roll out across the world, and then it kind of stopped at Australia. I, I can't remember exactly what happened there. But well, no. it's being
1: considered in other places, uh, including the EU and and the US.
0: Yes which it's taking a bit more time to get off the ground there. Um, yeah, it, it is an interesting topic and I think we probably need another podcast just to go into it, but thank you for, the, for that insights and reflection. Um, my next question is, which you touched upon earlier is the freedom of the press. So in terms of, you know, government restrictions, the American press freedom is some of the best in the world. Yeah. And, freedom of the press has being one of the core values of, that the United States has built. Um, the Press Freedom Index, as they call it, um, while the US is ranked, I think, at 42, it's still famous yeah. for journalism that's unhampered by government rules. So um, interestingly enough, well, you know, um, it's true, you don't need a licence to be a journalist. Um, it should also be noted that newspapers and online news outlets are fully unregulated. Um, and do not have licenses, but by contrast, television and radio outlets are licensed and regulated. So my question is: Do you think this might change? Do you think journalists should have licenses? Why are one? Why not? Or and if so, what would be the criteria? <laughs> um, you know, do you think it's it's a good thing that it's unregulated, or that it should step into kind of a regulated realm?
1: Um. I think it's a good thing that it's unregulated. The um and and to say it's unregulated is probably not the whole thing. I mean, truth it's accurate, but it, it doesn't yeah. convey the it's sort of lacking in context. So yeah. I mean, what is it that um that a, a journalistic code of ethics would do that would be enforced by regulators? Right. It would be to try to tell the truth. It yeah. would be to try to be accurate and uh, not do damage. Well, those, violating those rules can get you in a lot of trouble. And, yeah. uh, you know, you will, if you regularly make stuff up, um, you will be fired. You, The professional standards are enforced by the marketplace. And no institution wants to be, uh, have a reputation for, playing fast and loose with the facts. If you say harmful things about people that are untrue, you will be sued for libel and convicted. Mm-hmm. So those, you know, those kinds of, and, and libel is a thing that applies strictly to people who are, you know, who write things or, mm-hmm. or broadcast things about other people. So it's focused very much on, the, on media and on journalists in particular. So I would say that uh so that it's it's not it's not as if uh the press has free reign to do all kinds of harm and nobody can stop them. Mm-hmm. And and then the other thing about regulation would be that um part of the duty of a free press is to speak truth to power and to occasionally get on the wrong side of people in government. And if you're license can be pulled for um, saying something that um, a powerful person doesn't like, Mm. then um, you don't have a free press anymore. The licenses for broadcast um, uh, over the airwaves is because the airwaves are public property. And so you, um, you know, you need a license because you are basically Uh, crossing, you know, federal community real estate, if you will, if you Mm. want to characterize the airwaves that way. But if you're distributing online, or, um, you know, if you're doing your own distribution with trucks and paper in the old fashioned way, Mm. then um, you don't need any kind of governmental clearance to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I think it's very uh, true what you say. It's kind of a self-regulating uh, industry, if you will. And um, I think, you know, the industry doesn't have much room for, <laughs> you know, if you are doing things wrong, the wrong way, you'll soon find out. Um, so I, I think that's very true. Um, look, I, I don't want to paint like uh, the world of journalism with any dark strokes or anything. But I, I'm obviously an advocate for journalism outlets. Um, but given the pandemic and the rising global costs, and you know, just global instability in general, what is your advice? I'm interested to know, like, how can news platforms stay not only in business but profitable? Like, must they embrace this kind of cost-cutting culture, if you will? Um, should they do less investigative journalism? and more paid editorial. Um, obviously, there's no magic solution. Uh, so, we're not, you know, if we had the magic switch, we'd, we'd all know about it. But I guess what's your advice for creating a brighter future of journalism? And this kind of goes back to my other question earlier. But, you know, there's just so many, you know, coming out of the pandemic, obviously things are getting better. We're still pandemic. I don't think we're quite post-pandemic, but we're, we're getting there. Um, but yeah, what's your advice, I guess, on, you know, how do you kind of keep, keep profitable in these times? Cause that's essentially what keeps these organizations going.
1: Well, before we get into how to make journalistic organizations profitable, let me point out that there's a strong movement to have not-for-profit newsrooms that are supported by philanthropies, um, mm-hmm. uh, so that they are totally, um, unadulterated by commercial pressures f- from advertisers say. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that in r- some really successful organizations like ProPublica or the Texas mm-hmm. Tribune, uh, and some newer ones coming along like the, um, Baltimore banner mm-hmm. that are, that are focused on local news. Okay. So that model is one solution to the very real commercial problems you face. Mm. You you described that that the media companies face. Mm. Um in Inc and Fast Company, the case, their case, the we were a for-profit company. We are a, the um the the way that we became profitable over over the years was by Asking ourselves the basic Peter Drucker question of what business are we really in and expanding it beyond uh, Mm -hmm. just putting words on paper uh, or on a computer screen, but to live events, which is journalism sort of in a different platform
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, or other ways Mm -hmm. that um, we could serve our readers by recognizing them for their achievements. Um, and by bringing them together mm. in networking events and things like that, that um, were all part of our mission, but just weren't so narrowly prescribed. Mm. And you know, indeed, in the case of Inc. and Fast Company, it worked. Mm. After years of struggle, uh, in you know every year that I was CEO there, we improved and had a record financial year and finally in the year I departed um, the, uh, the year before I departed we reached profitability for the first time ever.
0: Wow that's that that is no easy feat um, and th- and that's what I wanted to really I do want to kind of dig a bit deeper uh, with you there if it's okay um, to kind of to talk to us about the challenges you faced when you took the reins because my understanding is that both uh, brands, uh, Ink and Fuzz Company, were kind of run independently, if you will, um, and I guess I'd love to know kind of without going to too much detail but just enough, like what did you have to do to, you know, you come on board and look at these two, which are, you know, they're still they're different publications obviously, um, but how you kind of brought internally your resources together so you could actually you know sustain both of them and make them both profitable by kind of joining resources um, can you talk a little bit about the processes and challenges you face yeah
1: sure well generally uh, when I became CEO there was an awful lot of duplication between Inc and Fast Company and it was obvious to me that there didn't have to be an engineering department, for example, for Inc. And, a, and an identical one for Fast Company. That that made no sense, and so it was a a matter of simple business efficiency to bring those things together. And other departments, including video and um, consumer marketing and so forth, could all be merged and serve both titles because they didn't. They there was there was nothing about those functions that was particular to either brand. What was particular to either brand was the editorial team and the advertising sales team there. You needed people who had a loyalty to a particular brand. And so those departments remained Mm -hmm. identified with one brand or the other. So that was, um, that was sort of the obvious business proposition. And, you know, it, It took some work. People had to be um, freed of, you know, a sense of territoriality and had to get over their notions of what the people at the other brand were like and how they were different and not us. Um, But that's part of, you know, a business building in general and getting people to overcome the human tendency to become tribal and to do their work in silos mm-hmm. and get, to get people to work together. That is hardly, that's hardly unique to Mansueto Ventures Inc. and Fest, company's owner. And, um, and it's a process mm-hmm. that really never ends just because human nature tends to uh, encourage people to, you know, narrow their circle into their own kind of, Village or their own silo. Um, so, but that's that's what it was. It was really just a kind of effort to continually remind mm-hmm. people that we were working together, that we were a stronger company when we worked together, and making sure that people were rewarded for for doing that, for reaching across the brands and and uh, helping each other
0: and And you joined at a very kind of interesting time, two thousand and seventeen. When I feel, you know, digital, you know, was really kind of coming into play, digital transformation was still a few years away for a lot of companies. Um, can you kind of elaborate on how you took the brands into that realm as well? Mm. Um, yeah.
1: Into the digital realm?
0: Yes. Like, you know, traditionally, obviously, you guys were very much a magazine format. Um, and I feel like two thousand and seventeen things were really even before that obviously <laughs> things were getting digital, but it was a crucial time for like social media and whatnot um how you kind of adapted all these different channels so yes say. yeah well
1: um the the idea was to meet our readers where they wanted to be met mm. and so the and also uh, to uh, provide advertising platforms for our sponsors where they wanted to, um, where they wanted to advertise. So the, the pivot away from print was dictated by the marketplace. And there wasn't any, I mean, it was, uh, you know, the certain amount of mourning the beauty of a well-designed magazine page and the, um, the tactile feel of a well-designed magazine, the pacing and so forth. All of those still exist, but the, in in both Inc. and Fast Company, but they're, you know, they're a smaller part of our business. Um, And instead to make the most of the, um, the many benefits of digital publishing, the, Mm. the, um, the speed with which you can bring news to the readers, the, the, the ability to have interactive content and um, uh, visuals that are, uh, you know, they move; that have video, and um, and also on the advertising side to provide targeting for um, advertising in a way that's not possible in print. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was it. And then, as I said, alluded to earlier. The, the When we asked ourselves the question of what business are we in and how are we helping our readers in ways, or, or how can we help our readers in ways that go beyond putting words on paper or on screens, um, that also opened new lines of business for us, like events and um, uh, membership and, and so forth.
0: Brilliant. I love that. You really kind of diversified the business so to speak and I think I think it's it's yeah it's very important to have different touch points um and you certainly did that I I guess I'm really fascinated and for those listening I'm um, kind of what a typical day kind of involved for you I mean I know in my world of journalism everything's every day's different <laughs> for different reasons um and you know you can get really drawn into some stories and um but I'm interested to know kind of what I guess you're obviously you have a whole research division, um, but kind of how you navigated your team into like, because let's be honest, Inc and Fast Company are known for kind of tracking the latest trends and the next big kind of, you know, um, businesses. Um, how did you guys navigate that the wild world of entrepreneurship? Cause we get, you know, a ton of, ton of emails, pictures daily, as I'm sure you guys do as well. Um, and obviously, you know, you get paid content, which obviously that's always a priority as well. But how do you kind of navigate that world and how did you kind of know what was a good story and what wasn't? So to speak?
1: Well, um, that's really the golden gut of the editors to make a determination of stories that reach the readers in uh, a voice that they can identify with that um, is unique to the to the brands of Inc or or fast company that Mm -hmm. tell stories about people that those that our audiences want to know about or emulate or um, admire or or know about or take lessons from so it's all really the art of good curation of news and editorial judgment and and writing skills Mm. the other you know otherwise the the business of ink and fast company is determined by the kinds of seasonality that are particular to media um but are you know that also have other businesses have rhythms too so you know our big fall events would be things that that would we would build up to, um, the Inc. 5000 event or, mm-hmm. or the Fast Company Innovation Festival. Those are things that editors would be working on um, to prepare for. And then we had uh, regular um, editorial packages that were spaced throughout the year, like the, um, the uh, again, uh, the Inc. 5000, which also had an event associated with it, or mm-hmm. other programs like Best Places to Work, and um, best in business and fast company had its own uh, rhythm uh, along those kinds of programs. And then the other thing was to react to what was happening in the world Mm -hmm. and uh, keep your ear to the ground about the kind of news and technology and entrepreneurship developments that that would matter to our readers.
0: Yeah, really quickly, um, let's talk entrepreneurship. You've profiled some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. What do you think is the recipe to success in being an entrepreneur? And in your experience, um, perhaps some character attributes that successful entrepreneurs exhibit?
1: Uh, Well, I would say that, first of all, I I debunk the idea that entrepreneurs are wild-eyed risk takers. There certainly is a lot of risk Mm -hmm. involved in entrepreneurship, but uh, most successful entrepreneurs take measured risk and do everything they can to minimize that before they take a leap or, or else that the other difficulties of the job are just too pressing. I would say the most important, if you had to identify one skill, is persistence or resilience. That That, um, mm-hmm. uh, that is necessitated by the fact that almost every business model is altered by you know, contact with customers and investors. So you have to be very flexible. Then you also have to be able to bounce back from the inevitable disappointments you'll have when your ideas didn't quite work as you expected they would. Um, You also have to be really focused on the business. Um, There is uh, just a kind of um, relentlessness to being a, a startup founder and being the person who, everyone else is relying on and who has to make payroll. Um, and the opportunities that will present themselves are not necessarily permanent. So you have to be alert to them. Um, the way that we um, used to sort of identify the skills that you need in entrepreneurship or by the triad of guts, grit, and focus.
0: Very, very very true. You you need all those things. I, I think resilience is one that resonates. Um, to kind of, you need to be resilient and go go with the highs and go with the lows. Um, thank you for that. And and then my my next question is because you have interviewed so many, uh, you know, business leaders. Um, who in your experience is the most interesting person? Now, when I say interesting, that can mean obscure, fascinating, intriguing whatever constitutes interesting to you, um, but who has been uh, for for bad or for worse, because, you know, obviously for good or for worse, I should say, um, because, you know, entrepreneurs obviously some burn out, some go on to build, become serial entrepreneurs, some, you know, but who has been the most interesting to you? That
1: is such a difficult question. It is, um,
0: because you can't really choose like your your children, so to speak, and not that they're your children, but you know, every every story is kind of like a baby, so to speak, um that you, you kind of you you birth into the world and put it out there. um But yeah, is there someone that's kind of, I guess, stood out to you that you've kind of thought, oh wow, that's I, I will
1: I'll, I'll I'll talk about one person uh who was not perhaps the most interesting in herself, but her story was so iconic of the kinds of stories that. Ink would tell. Mm. Uh, her name is Brandy Temple, um, and she founded a company called uh, Lolly Wally Doodle uh, out of North Carolina, which made children's clothes. Okay. And she was uh, a person who, by her own description, aspired to nothing other than being a trophy wife. Oh wow! Until her husband was killed in an auto accident, oh, and she had to provide for her family herself, and she had as a hobby made children's clothes and she discovered that there was a market for those clothes Mm -hmm. and that she could uh, sell them over Facebook which was at the time a real innovation Mm. and so she seized the opportunity or the necessity however you want to characterize it built Wally doodle into the biggest employer in her depressed North Carolina town that had been wow. hard hit by, um, you know, the textile industry moving away from the U S and, you know, became this, uh, rose to the occasion and became this model citizen of Lexington, North Carolina and a sort of a role model for entrepreneurs who read ink. Uh, so, uh, she was, you know, not the most successful entrepreneur we've ever covered, certainly not the most famous, but in a way that captured the, the guts and the grit mm. uh, and the focus that mm. that makes her a great entrepreneur. She was sort of the, the poster kid.
0: Brilliant. Oh, I'll have to I'll – be, I'll be Googling her after this. Um, brilliant. And, and my next two questions, final questions – um these are two signature parlay me questions we always ask. Uh, the first one, is there an entrepreneur that's inspired your career or been a mentor in your career? And it could be it could have been a past colleague, it could be a current colleague, it could be someone we all know like a Richard Branson, it could be someone personal like in your family. but has there been someone that's kind of inspired you along along your way or been a mentor to you?
1: Yes, uh, the editor of the founding editor of People magazine uh became at one time as he moved through other titles at Time Incorporated uh was my editor at Money. Money and People were both owned okay. by the same company Time Incorporated. And uh he was really important in giving me confidence and shaping my writing and editing ability and uh he was instrumental in in my career his name was dick bergheim and he was he was an interesting character in that first of all he was very accomplished and having been one of the founding editors of people so he was a great magazine maker uh he is uh he's still with us Uh, uh retired of course and he was uh, on paper uh anything he wrote was beautiful eloquent just marvelous craftsmanship um of the written word and as a speaker he was tongue-tied and inarticulate and very hard to follow. If you ever saw a transcript of anything he said, uh, it was a remarkable, wow. uh, a remarkable sort of dichotomy in yes. uh, in his spoken and written communication.
0: How interesting! Wow, fascinating. Well, that's great. So you got to you had the you had the uh, fortune of working alongside your your um you know on you know your your mentor, so to speak. So that's brilliant. Um, thank you for yes. sharing that with us and. Our final question um, is if you're a gambling man and we are not endorsing gambling whatsoever, but if you were you a blackjack, a roulette, or a poker player.
1: Blackjack because blackjack. you can, yes, but card counting allows you to manage the odds.
0: <laughs> there you go. He didn't hesitate. No, we, we like this question because it's always interesting kind of what kind of, I guess, uh, you know, logic you have and whatnot. In blackjack, there's a lot of strategy there, so that's that's interesting. I like it. and look. I want to thank you, Eric, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. For those that are interested in like contacting you um, for whatever reason or stalking you uh, online, you have a website. Is that correct?
1: Yes, uh, EricShermanberg.com.
0: Perfect. And I also want to take this moment to thank Dublin Tech Summit who actually gave us the possibility of meeting and putting together this podcast. So thank you Dublin Tech Summit, which you actually spoke at um, just the other week. So we need another podcast for that. Um, But look, thank you so much, Eric, for your time. It's much appreciated. And um, we wish you all the best and we we, will continue to follow your journey and your podcast. Where can people find your podcasts?
1: Uh, The podcast is called In Reality and it is available through all the podcast players that you know, uh, Spotify, Apple, and so on.
0: Excellent, In Reality. You heard it here first, maybe some of you, or you already know it. Look, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure, January. It's really, really fun talking to you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.